excited to be here uh, this morning. I hope you are excited to be here this morning. We are journeying into a new series, a three-part series. So three weeks, we're going to take a, a little break from our slow walk with Jesus, as we've been talking about, as we're going through the Gospel of John. We're taking our time and kind of taking a slow walk with Jesus. And every step, we're learning something about Jesus, and we're learning something about ourselves as well. But this series is going to be a little bit different. I'm very excited for this series, because what we're going to try to do is summarize the entire story of the Bible in three weeks, in three parts, in three movements. So if you are curious about Christianity, if maybe you, you've, you've never even kind of ventured into Christianity, or maybe what it is is you grew up going to church, but then you felt maybe a little disenfranchised by the church, and now maybe you're going back and thinking, hey, I, I want to go back, and what was this story? How does this story affect me? I think it's the perfect series for you, because in three weeks, you can see kind of the whole movement of God, and I think here's what you'll find. You'll find in God's story, in this big story, it is the key to unlocking the significance of your story. And, and, and I'm going to argue that it's the only way your story finds hope. It's the only way your story finds a happily ever after. It's where you're going to find worth, love, value, all the things that you long for. Now, if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you've been a follower for a while, this is a great series for you. It's a wonderful series for you because what this will do when you want to share your faith, when you get that perfect moment, just the, the door opens and you think, this is a time that I can give my hope to somebody else, you could do it in three moves. In three moves. In three moves, you can summarize the storyline of the Bible, the story of humanity in three small movements, faithful movements. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to release kind of what we call a pocket-sized version of these three messages, and it's going to train you to share these three messages in three minutes. I know you're thinking, wait, can you give me the three-minute version before we do the three weeks? I'm just a speed reader, right? That's why we're going to release it in a couple weeks. Now, so let's just start. Let's start our journey on God's story. We're going to start with the first part, the first part. And as we do that, let me ask you this question. Okay, I want you to think deeply here for a moment. Ask yourself, what do you want? Or if you're asking yourself, it would be, what do I want? Deep down inside, what do you want? What do you want? What do you long for? Maybe a way to think about it is, what would you regret not achieving or having before the end of your life? What do you long for? What do you want? What do you deeply desire? What drives you? What moves you? When you are at a fork in the road in your life, what makes you choose one path over the other? What moves you and drives you? What do you hope to gain in this life before this life is over? What do you want? Now, if we just took a poll and we just asked each other that question, we'd probably come up with several different answers. But my guess is all of those answers would probably fall within, surprising number here, three categories. Do you notice the rhythm here of what we're doing? Probably three categories. Your answer would probably fall that, well, I want to find success. I want to find joy. I want to find delight socially, right? And how I relate to other people. I want to have healthy relationships. I want to 
find my soulmate. I want to find romance. I want to find my Prince Charming. I want to find my Sleeping Beauty. Well, she's not sleeping, right? But I want to find romance. Or, or, or beyond that, I, I want to have kids. I want to have sons and, and daughters. I want to have nieces and nephews. I want to have family, and I want to like my family, right? And I want my family to like me. Maybe what drives you is that kind of social dynamic. I want to find delight in my social life. Family and friends. Or maybe it'd be professionally. Work. Right? I want to find value in my work. I want to find uh, impact. I, want to, I desire influence. I, I, I like to climb the corporate ladder, but I want to do it in a way that doesn't just affect my bank account. I want it to fill up my heart. I want to go to work and be satisfied in what I do. I want to be proud of my work. I want to make a difference. Maybe it's another realm. Not just socially, not just professionally, but maybe spiritually. Right? I want to have a compass. I want to have a guide. I want to have a north star. I want to have a magnetic north. I want to set my compass in this direction so that no matter what happens in my life, I know the direction to go. I want meaning, purpose, value. I want to know my creator. Socially, professionally, spiritually, I bet all of our answers would fall in one of those three categories. So where do we find it? Where do we find delight? Socially, professionally, spiritually, where do we find it? We find it in God's design. In God's design. God, our creator, knows what gives you delight. He has created a guidebook and a plan for you socially, professionally, and, of course, spiritually. The key to your delight is his design. And let me show you this. Right in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1. I say in the beginning because Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And we're going to start with the first chapter in the first book of the Bible. And let me show you how God has a plan for you socially, professionally, and spiritually. God has a plan for your delight when it comes to relating to other people. When it comes to relating relating to your work, your labor, the things that you do, when it comes to your job and your career, but also when it comes to relating to him. So let's go. Genesis chapter 1, we're starting with verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26. Before we get to that passage, let me just summarize the entire message to you in our big idea. This is the main idea of the passage. If you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. Simply, it is this. His design is our delight. His design is our delight. Our delight is dependent upon his design. His design isn't about limiting our delight. It is about unleashing our delight. He knows us and knows what's best for us. He has created our deepest longings, and he's the only one who can truly satisfy them. Let me show you how God's design encompasses all the areas of our life. Let's first go socially, how you relate to each other. Genesis chapter 1, we're in verse 26. God starts this way. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What is God doing here? God is making humanity. 
He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Something incredibly unique is happening here. If you just look down at your Bible, you'll see that we're almost all the way through Genesis chapter 1. And everything before this in Genesis chapter 1, God has created everything else besides man. Man is kind of the last thing to be created. And there's something very interesting when God creates. He uses vocabulary that's very different than what he's using right here. Like, for instance, when God created light, he said, let there be light. A somewhat impersonal term. Let there be this, let the ground produce vegetation. That was God's vocabulary. But something has changed in his vocabulary. Before he makes man, he says something he has never said before. And he has been speaking a lot in Genesis chapter 1. But when it gets to the pinnacle of his creation, the crown jewel of his creation, he says, let us make. He doesn't say, let there be man, let there be woman. He says, let us make. What's going on there? God is showing this is different. It's the first time we see, if we can use this term, divine deliberation. This is God speaking in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Guys, huddle up. Let's get together. Let's do something different. Let's make man in our image, in our likeness. Here's another unique thing. When God's creating animals, it says he creates them according to their kind. He creates the sea creatures according to their kind, the birds according to their kind. He keeps using that phrase, but when it comes to man, he doesn't use it. He doesn't say according to their kind. What does he say? No, they're going to look like us. I'm going to make them or we are going to make them in our image, in our likeness. What is he saying? Something special is happening here. This creation will resemble us. And it will represent us. Look at the next thing that he says. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them. Now it's very important. If you're okay with marking your Bible, you should probably mark this one. If you're a husband, you should definitely mark this one. Okay? That third word there is, and let them. Circle that. Them. Do you know what that is? That's a plural. That means it's talking about two people. It said, let us make man in our image, in our own likeness, and let them. Who is in the likeness of God? Who is created after the image of God? Is it only men? No. Ladies. The answer is no, right? He says right there, let us make man our image. What he's talking about there is the plural idea of man. He's talking about mankind. Because in the next verse, he says, let them. Clearly, God is talking about the plural. So God is saying, I'm going to make something special. Something that resembles us, that represents us. Because he says, let them, what? Have dominion. Let them have dominion over all the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. I want you to rule in my place. You're royal in a sense. Men and women, you are special. You are unique. So God creates a man and a woman. He gives them identity. These are the two genders that God sets up. And he creates them equally. 
equally in the image of God, equally in the likeness of God, but he creates them different. One is called man, and one is called woman. And these differences aren't in opposition to one another. They are complementary to one another. God is making a whole out of two pieces. Look at this. Jump to Genesis chapter 2. We see this clearly. We see this clearly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says this, And the Lord said, and the Lord God said, It is not good. Now stop here. Anytime you're reading the Bible, and you notice there's a rhythm, right? I don't even know if that's a rhythm. I may be offbeat. That's why I'm not singing the songs, okay? But you may notice there's a rhythm. There's a pattern. Something's repeated over and over. Genesis 1, God has created things after every time it seems that he creates something, he calls it good. Over and over and over again. Creates light. Man, that's good. Creates the animals, right? Especially cow, beef, brisket, right? Ooh, that's good. We got to smoke that thing, right? Good, good, good. God just keeps creating and he keeps calling it good. I think he's done it, I think he does it about eight times in one chapter. But something breaks or changes, or pivots, maybe there's a better way. Break is probably too strong. But he makes man, just Adam, and he says, for the first time ever, ooh, that's not good. Now, don't think God's saying, oops. Well, God is saying, this is not complete. In God's creation, he'll create the sky, but the sky's not complete. What does it need? It needs birds. It needs stars. We see this as a pattern in Genesis 1. God will create a space, and then he'll fill that space. He'll create the seas, but it needs something. It's incomplete. It's not going to function correctly. We need to put some sea creatures in that. Here is the land, but we need man to care for it. We need livestock on it. So, so God sees something and says, in order to function, it needs something else. God is now looking at man, this unique, this special creature that he's made, this crowning achievement, this image bearer of him who will resemble him, represent him, and he's looking at Adam and says, this is not good. It's not good for this guy to be alone. So what does he do? I've got to create Eve, this complementary part. I've got to fit this piece together. Right? Look at how God describes it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, let's, let's slow down here a little bit when it says, I need to make him a helper. Ladies, you should not feel hurt by this term, helper. This is not a demeaning term. Do you know this term is actually used more to describe somebody else than women. And do you know who that is? God. God is described as Israel's helper frequently in the Old Testament. In fact, he wears this term more than women do. So when we see this term, should we say, oh, this means servant, right? This means underling. This means somebody of diminished value. Woman, go get me my chips. Where's the remote? That's not it. Not it at all. The idea of when God is seen as the helper of Israel, of his people to defend them, to protect them, to go out in battle with them, God is an essential partner in the mission being completed. And that's exactly what God is saying to 
Adam, hey man, this is not good. I want you to have dominion over creation. You got a job to do. You can't do my mission on your own. Thank you, right? That's a married man. He just got a high five, right? You can't do my mission. He just got a kiss too, right? You can't do my mission on my own. You can't. It's not going to work. So God says, I need to create a helper. Now notice this. This is so interesting. Because notice what God does not do. God does not go, all right, Adam, let's talk. Come here. So it's not good you're alone. So I'm going to make you a helper. Blonde or brunette? Now, of course, Adam would be like, what? I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that. Can you teach me the color palette first? But Adam actually doesn't realize it's not good for him to be alone. Who realized it's not good for him to be alone? God did. God's the one who said it. Uh-oh, this is off. Man can't figure out his own problem. Preach. Right? But God figures it out. This isn't going to work. And then God does not ask Adam to make any decisions. What does Adam do? God puts him to sleep. The most valuable thing a man could do at times when a big decision needs to happen. Just go to sleep. She'll take care of it. Right? Look at what happens. God puts him to sleep. We'll go, go to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs, that the, or sorry, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God designed the helpmate. And then look what Adam says. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now what's I think lost here a little bit here is in the, the Hebrew, this is that first statement is an exclamation that at last, yes, right? It's like uh, 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 Etta James, right? When she says, at last, my love has come along and life is like, anybody? A song, right? I'm not going to sing it, okay? I'm not Rebecca. I'm not even going to try, okay? That's what it's talking about. At last, this is it. And guess who did not decide what that woman would be? Adam. God's design created what? His delight, or fulfilled his delight. His decision did not make his delight. But this is the pattern of God. What has God been doing? He's been creating good for who? For man. Man's not made the first day. No, no, no. God's doing everything. Ooh, this is good right here. Oh, that light, that's good. That seed, that's good. That brisket, sorry, that cow, that's good. That bacon, that pork, whatever, that's good, right? That kale, ugh. That's for the serpent. He can eat that, <laughs> right? But God keeps creating good, 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 and then he offers it up to man and says, here, you have dominion over this. You care for this. And then he says, let me make you a woman. And in God's design, Adam says, at last. See, delight is right there. What's the key to Adam's delight? God's design. A man and a woman who become husband and wife, but also become mother and father. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. 
God's plan is a husband, a male and a female, husband and wife and mother and father. Verse 28. And God blessed them. This is of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fruitful does not mean tend the garden. He's not talking about the garden anymore. He's saying, you be fruitful, you multiply, you fill the earth. Create a family. Now, now here's the question. If this is God's pattern, or is this just a picture? Is this a picture of a couple, or is this the pattern for all couples? Is God's design for their delight a picture of just, this is suited for one couple, or is this a pattern for all couples? We'll go back when God finishes the marriage ceremony to Genesis chapter 2. And notice some very interesting language here. Language that almost does not make sense, I'm sure, maybe to Adam and Eve yet. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Adam has his aha moment, his at last moment, his delight moment. And then God says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Wait, now stop. Is he talking about Adam and Eve? No. Why? Why do we know that? Because Adam and Eve have no father or mother. This is not talking about what has happened. It's talking about what will happen. He's saying this picture right here of this couple in this garden, in my design, is a special, unique bond between a man and and a woman to be a husband and a wife, a mother and a father. And this is not just a picture of what I've done. It's the pattern for what will be done. My design will continue on. And in history, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. This is true for Jesus. This is Jesus' view of marriage. This is Jesus' view of Genesis. We go all the way to the New Testament in Mark chapter 9, or sorry, Mark chapter 10, Verses 6 and 7, when Jesus asked the question about marriage, you know what he refers to? The two passages we've been reading, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Look what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 6. He's asked this question about divorce, and this is what Jesus says. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is Jesus doing there? He's quoting Genesis 1. He's quoting Genesis 2. He's taking both those passages and says, this is the pattern. This is the design for social bliss. This is the design for human flourishing. Male, female, husband, wife, mother, father. And they have a job. A work to do. This is the professional dynamic. All right, go back to Genesis chapter 1. We'll see this again. In Genesis chapter 1, right after he makes Adam and Eve, in his likeness, in his image, he says to them in verse 26, and let them have dominion. This means rule. They got to care for creation. We see in Genesis chapter 2, the same thing is said. Here he's speaking to Adam, but I think it extends to Eve as well. In verse 14, he says, and the name, or sorry, the verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Do you know what that word work means? 
It's a very complicated term. It means work. It means to serve. Man has a profession. Man has a job. Eve has a job. We see this profession actually worked out in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we get a small glimpse, if you look at verse 20 of Genesis chapter 2, it says, Then man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. Now stop here. Who has been giving names to things in Genesis chapter 1? God. He says, hey, you know what that is? Light. You know what that is? Land. You know what that is? That's Adam. You know what that is? That's Eve. And then God goes to Adam and says, all right, I want you to start naming things. This isn't just a, a children's book, right? A, apple, right? C, cow. I don't know why I'm very hungry today. Well, I can just keep going back, right? That's not just what's going on here. He's expressing his dominion in naming these creatures. He's showing that he has a job to do. What does this tell us? This tells us that man was created to work, created to have a job, not created to live in the resort called the Garden of Eden. He wasn't created to be served by creation. He was created to serve creation. Now, this is something very important, and I don't want you to think I'm trying to be political. I'm trying to be biblical. There's something very important to the modern critique of environmentalism here. One is, we are the stewards of God's creation. We should care. We should care about creation. Now, the other part is, we should care. And what do I mean by that? I just said the same thing twice. I just kind of came across this modern critique from an environmentalist saying, you know, the problem of this earth is man. The virus on this earth is man. Ooh, nope. Nope, you, ha you had me there for a moment. Okay, you, you got me that things are being abused and things are being neglected and things are being destroyed and things are not being cared for. I'm nodding my head. Yep, yep, yep. And he said, we just need to get out of the way. Nope. Notice the garden is not magical. Gardens don't take care of themselves. They're not self-perpetuating. They're not, they're not a closed system that will just care for itself. He's saying, no, I need man and woman. You serve this garden. You work this garden. You guard this garden. Creation needs our management. And that management, that task, that job is before the fall. Work is not a curse. It's only become the curse after the fall. God has a plan for us socially, God has a plan for us professionally, and God has a plan for us spiritually. Jump to, to Rome, or sorry, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. I think one of the, one of the coolest verses in, in just the entirety of the Genesis account is right here in verse 8, and sometimes we read it really quickly. This, of course, is after the fall, after sin, but look what God was expecting to do with the crown of his creation. This unique, wonderful, beautiful uh, couple who are equal, yet different, compatible, made to be male, female, husband, wife, mother, father. They weren't just created for each other. They were created for him. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, look what God wants to do. In verse 8 it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
Notice it didn't say cold. This tells you that God's country is California. It didn't say hot. That's probably Bay Area. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to be an accurate reader of the Bible, but I'm thinking that's probably East Bay. Maybe Hercules, Panol area. I don't know, but it feels like that's what's going on there. But look what God's doing. God says, I want to walk with you. He's not walking with the beasts. He's not walking with the chickens. He's not walking with the cows. He's not walking with anybody. He wants to walk with his creation. This term walk is used all over the Bible. In, in the book of Leviticus, God says, I want to walk with you. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says the same thing. I want to walk amongst my people. The whole reason there's a tabernacle is why? Because so God can be with his people. The whole reason he built a temple is so God could be with his people. And then that sacred space explodes in the New Testament because now the Holy Spirit is inside you and God wants to walk with you every day. And then when we get to new heavens, new earth, the wrapping of the story, the city of God and the city of man become one and then God is in our presence. Or maybe a better way to say that is we are in the presence of God. We are with God, walking with God. You see, God did not just give us a road map for success. It's not like the owner manual in your minivan. God says, well, if you just, you know, take the book, get the oil changed here, get the water pump changed here, here's the instructions for you to be okay. No, God wants to be in the passenger seat. That's what he wants to do. He's not here just to give you a road map for joy. He wants to take the journey with you. He wants to walk with you. And what does all this design give us? Delight. Just like Adam seeing Eve. He has no input in the decision. He sleeps. God creates. And he says, at last, all of this good God is creating for us. He's not keeping us from good. He is creating good for us. He's not keeping us from delight. He is giving us the light. Now here's the sad part. This wonderful, awesome, fantastic creator who has made us as the crown of his creation different than anything else, who set up a system and a pattern, male, female, husband, wife, mother, father, flourish in this garden, work this garden, serve this garden, and walk with me, the God who has done all of that, we move away from his design. And what happens when we move away from God's design? We destroy our delight. Let me show you this. In Genesis chapter 3, it doesn't take very long, not many days, maybe just weeks, and something happens. A choice is made. God's design can't be trusted. Look at this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent, this is Satan possessing this animal to speak. And now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say... So tricky here. What is he saying here? Let's judge the words of God. Oh, how arrogant. How flattering, but how arrogant. We don't sit in the judgment seat for God's design. We follow it. We don't judge it. He made it for us, and yet, what is Satan doing? Hey, let's talk about what God said real quick. Let's examine this. Is this really good for you? And look at how he distorts what God actually said. He says in verse 2, sorry, verse 1, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that. God said, eat of every tree freely, except for that one. What does he say? Man, that means God doesn't want you to do anything. And why do you, it just feels like I'm talking to my kids, right? Dad, you don't have me have any fun. No, I just said, don't put the fork in the light socket. That's all I said. No, you never let me have fun. Like, that's what's going on here. God has said, you can have everything. It's not a prohibition, it's permission. It's permission to enjoy everything. And Satan comes up and says, man, look at that. God doesn't want you to do anything. And then Eve gets the word of God wrong. Satan got it wrong, Eve got it wrong. Look what Eve says. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eh, wrong answer. How do you tend a garden if you can't touch the fruit? How do you work the garden if you can't touch the fruit? How do you keep the garden? How are you a gardener if you can't touch the plants? God did not say, don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. Already we see there's a slip, but here's the big turn. And the irony here is so incredibly sad. Look what Satan does next. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. God's lying. And God is keeping good from you. What a reverse of orders, right? Genesis 1 and 2, God is creating good for us, not keeping good from us. And Satan says what? Oh, God's withholding something. And look at this. Just look at how sad this is, how ironic this is, how ruinous this is. Look at what Satan says. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. What? Aren't they already like God? Didn't Genesis 1 tell us? Didn't God say, I'm going to make you in my image, in my likeness? And now Satan is saying, hey, you need to be like God. They're already like God. What is Satan doing? Is he selling them something they already have? Look at the next phrase. He says, you'll be like God in what way? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the turn. Who knows what's good? Who's the only person in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 so far? We just started the storyline of God, but there's only one person who's ever called anything good to this point. And who is that? God. And he does it over and over and over and over again. Eight times in one chapter. And then at the very end, he looks at all and says, very good. And what does that mean? God is deciding, that's good, man. Oh, that, that is good. And God has created all this good for his special creation. But something changes. Eve says, wait, I want to decide what's good. I want to be like God, deciding what is good and what is evil. She knows right and wrong. Adam knows right and wrong. What's right? Eat of all the trees, man. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. She knows what's wrong. What's wrong? Don't eat of that tree. 
This knowing good and evil means what? I get to decide what is good and what's evil. Look at how Moses makes us clear of this in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for what? Food. That looks good to eat. Nope. Is it a good tree? It is a good tree. God created it. I call it a very good tree. The aesthetics were beautiful. It's a beautiful tree. It's not a sin tree. But God says, you don't eat it. It's not good for you to digest. And she says, no, 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 no. I decide what's good. And Adam, the same thing. Those yous in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 are all plural. So this is Adam and Eve being talked to by Satan. And Eve says, we. She is representing her husband. So man is there. And he's right there because he eats the fruit. And what happens when they eat the fruit? Everything breaks. This beautiful union that God created between equal partners, male, female, husband, wife, to be mother and father, to work and to walk with God, all of that breaks in a moment when man decides, I know what delight is. I know what good is. Get out of my way. It's not your design. It's mine. I decide the good. And look what happens. Immediately. And so she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the, uh, their eyes were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Why is that important? Because right after God joined them together in this wonderful first wedding, it says at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. They were perfectly in relationship. And then they decide what's good and what breaks first. They break. And then it all unravels. And next week we're going to cover how it all unravels. It all breaks. All of it. God's design, His design is our delight. Just think for a moment. Think if there was an all-knowing being who was familiar with every single atom and molecule in your body. And this all-knowing being says, you should choose A. Would you listen to that? This all-knowing, all-powerful being who is intimately aware of every single minute detail of your existence, who knows you better than you, who created you, if he told you, this is good, what would you do? Would you trust that? See, because here's what we do. At the center of our worldview, the center of our existence, only two things can be there, or one thing can be there. But there are two things that will fight for supremacy in the center of your worldview, in the center of your ethics, in the center of your life. And it is either God's design or it is your desire. And what we often do is what? We just default. We default to desire. What's going on in here? What's going on here? What do I want? When it comes to our finances, when it comes to our sex lives, our social lives, our professional lives, our spiritual lives, our default is what? Well, what do I want? Where does that lead? Are your desires bad? Are your desires good? The answer is yes to both of those. 
The thing is, you don't know the good and the bad that's in here. You need a design. You need a design to say, oh, that doesn't match. Oh, that doesn't work. All right, I'll follow that. Just like Adam, who fell asleep when his bride was created, did Adam know best? No! He just knew when he saw the design, he said, wow, at last, that's exactly what I wanted. Exactly what I needed. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, hold on a second. I'm skeptical of this. Trusting somebody else with my delight is like, is like telling my forgetful friend to order for me at a restaurant when I go to the restaurant. Right? And my naive friend forgets that I have a shellfish allergy, so when I get back from the bathroom, there's a shrimp salad waiting for me. Right? And you know what? That's what we're afraid of. Why do we default to our desire? Because to trust somebody else with our delight is a scary thing. But God is not a naive friend. God knows you better than you and has exactly what you need. Exactly what will satisfy you. One of our pastors, as we were talking about this passage, mentioned a story of he was trying to... uh, uh, meet with somebody that he just spiritually admired, and he wanted to know what was the secret of his successful spiritual life, you could say. His just devotion to the Lord was something that was so admirable, and had shown itself over such a long period of time. And so he went to this man, and he said, I just, I, I'm curious, would you help me understand? And of course, just like you would expect, this older gentleman said, you know, very humbly, he said, well, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all this stuff figured out. But then he quoted this passage from Jesus Christ, and he said, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. And he said, you know what I do when I pray? Now listen to this. He said, I pray this very simple prayer. Father, fix my appetite. Very interesting, isn't it? It's not, Father, give me what I want. What is he saying? Father, give me the right wants. I can't trust my desires. I can't trust my appetite. You've got to fix that. My want to is broken. I want to challenge you this week. Maybe you're making a big decision in your life, socially, professionally, for your marriage, for your children, for their schooling, for your career, for your job, for your home. Maybe you know God is really moving on you to do something more spiritually. uh, uh, To to give up more of your finances in generosity to those around you or to this local church. That God is really convicting you that your spiritual life is not where it should be. Your devotional life is not where it should be. As all these decisions start to flood to your mind, don't ask God first, God, give me what I desire. Father, give me what I want. Rather ask the question, Father, fix Fix my appetite that's wrong. Give me the right want-tos. We trust his design and not our desires. Now again, you may be skeptical of that. Next week, we will see how it all unravels when God's design is not followed. And it leads to brokenness in every single sector of our lives. Let's pray. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. 
Oh, Father, we thank you that you have designed us, you have created us, you have made us, and you are intimately involved in every detail and minutia of our existence. We are known by you, and you want us to fully know you. You want us to walk with you. It is a wonderful thing to know that you have a guidebook for our delight. Oh, Father, help us not to lean on our desires, our impulses, our wants, our hungers, our appetites. Father, this week, answer our prayer. Would you fix our appetite? Change our want-tos. Change our desires. If it's not honoring to your design, Father, change us so we know how to pray, so we know how to ask, so we hunger and we thirst after the right things. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.